Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the story within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert Lamb, and with me is our other co-host, I'm Drew Tan. Yo, 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 everybody. So, today is a very special day for us here at Between the Gutters. We are posting, this is going to be our 50th episode. 50 cent! Yeah! <laughs> 50 cent! We the big fitted now! <laughs> you know, this is our 50th episode and it's actually been about three years since we began i was looking at uh our records and uh our first episode was posted back in like mid-october of 2017 oh nice 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 so it, it took us three years to do 50 episodes <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're slowly getting there we're catching up we're we're catching our stride yeah we we kind of have uh an image comics publishing schedule where the issues come out whenever whenever they're ready our episodes come out whenever they're ready so there, there's not necessarily uh you know a set schedule where we're like okay yeah. we got to have one every other tuesday or whatever yeah i mean it's uh it's quality not quantity and you know what? If we ever get to a point where we can make something more regular, hey, I, I'm I'm more than happy to 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 explore that option. But you know what? Recently, I think we've been pretty good about it. Quite honestly. Yeah, I think the the pandemic and being forced to stay at home more often and not going <laughs> anywhere, that's definitely uh, given us more motivation to be more regular. Yeah. In our episode. Time needs to stand still more often. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> the world needs to come crashing to a halt more often. <laughs> we need we need everything in the world to to slowly spiral downwards so that we, we have no do. choice but to do <laughs> You're all screaming in chaos and terror. But that's fine for us because now we have the time to work on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and read all the comics that we've accumulated. <laughs> so in honor of this being our uh, 50th episode, we're going to do a sort of uh, our version of a clip show. But it's really just us talking and gushing over some of our favorite issue number 50s in comics and uh so that's that's what we're gonna go over today but before we uh jump right into that topic one of the things that we can't we can't ignore is the fact that uh we just had a big election that just happened and uh we feel like we're gonna try to address this in our own way by asking ourselves a little a little question. We're gonna talk politics on our show. Yep. So but it's the between the gutters version of politics. So really, it's just Albert. Which comic book characters would make the best president, and which ones would make the worst president? Ooh. Okay. <laughs> uh, my instinct is my my first instinct is was to go with Superman or Captain America, because. Their costumes are the color of the flag, and that's enough. 
<laughs> what about U.S. Agent, man? His costume is black, white, and red. That ain't the color of our flag. Yeah, but Superman's costume has yellow. The stars are yellow. It's okay. <laughs> what? what are you talking about? <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> Uh, uh, Dude, Superman. He's Superman got the white eyes. <laughs> Superman ain't even a natural-born U.S. citizen, dude. He can't be president. You want foreign influence in our country? You want you want a foreigner leading our country? America for Americans, not Kryptonians. Exactly, dude. Who's to say that he's not going to prioritize Kryptonian interests over American interests? Well, in all fairness. Krypton is nothing but a pile of rubble. Who's he gonna? Who's he gonna give his interest to? Oh, well, they're still the bottle city of Kandor. That's true. That's true. All right. All right. I got you. I got you. What else? What you got? Who do you think would make a uh, a good president, Drew? Out of, in comics. Yeah, I think the obvious answer has to be Captain America, um, just because he he represents everything that America stands for. And he's a, a leader who uh, is tough, but also fair-minded. He is just. He has integrity. Also, yeah, he's, he's a man of integrity. So he, he's, he's a true leader, man. Um, that, that's the obvious choice. I think another obvious choice is Prez, you know, the yeah. obscure DC Comics character. Um, for those of you who are t- too lazy to look it up on Wikipedia. He's basically <laughs> like this teenage kid who becomes president because uh, somehow he lives in this world where they abolish the age requirement and he ends up uh, leading America into the most, uh, basically the grooviest era of all time. Yeah, I think it was based on like a like an obscure 70s comic, right? Originally. Yeah. 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 And, uh, P-R-E-Z, Prez. Yeah. But... I don't. I don't think the original series lasted very long. Uh, eventually, they would revisit the character in other series. And I, although I've never read the original Pred series, I do think that the the stories that revisited him were pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, totally, totally. So, who do you think would make the worst uh, comic book president? Uh. First one that came to mind was Bruce Banner. Really? The worst? I think, well, I mean, I'm sure there could be guys that are even worse than him, but I think he'd do a pretty bad job just because if something makes him mad, he's just going to hulk out and smash stuff. And that's not really the way that politics work. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he tries to pass some some uh, piece of legislation, and then... Uh, like oh, the no, get two-thirds majority? Yeah, exactly. He's just going <laughs> to smash everything, dude. Hulk angry! Hulk hate like, filibuster! There's, there's, they're going to have to raise taxes so much just to keep on repairing all the things that he smashes. Okay, okay. Huh. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, if you if you if you really were if you were really trying to come up with the worst candidates, 
you you'd have to just go with the super villains, right? Like, yeah, uh, I mean, in the comics, Lex Luthor was president. There was a whole couple yeah. of years where he was president. Um, so that'd be like if Norman Osborn were president or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think. So I think in terms of our personal views, I do think that the idea of Lex Luthor being a president was could have had a lot of story potential, but I just don't think that the stories that came out of that particular time period were special or good or memorable. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, yeah. mediocre comics. I mean, I, I will say that the period when he was president did have there were there were comics that happened to be good that happened to have president lex in them but it never felt like the president lex narrative itself yeah was really no 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 in I, and of itself strong i i totally get what you mean like because they were building that idea up to be you know it was supposed to be this pretty powerful story about one of the worst people on earth becoming uh what what it would mean for one of the worst people on earth to become one of the most powerful people on earth you know and yeah it just never felt like that was well i'm not gonna say it wasn't explored to its full potential but it was never explored in a way that captivated me or or maybe yeah or satisfied me or made me feel like there was any gravitas to that sort of story you know um yeah if anything it feels more like a missed opportunity <laughs> yeah yeah i agree it was definitely a missed opportunity they could have if they had taken the time to really explore it in a deeper way there was so much story potential that there could have been i mean first of all you got to ignore the fact that this dude did all these crimes and somehow he's still able to become the president. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess you can make the argument that maybe in the post-crisis continuity, he, he uh, didn't do a lot of the things that we naturally associate him doing. And he was just this really sly, cunning uh, industrialist or business person who amassed a, great fortune and was able to use that money to to shoot himself to fame and power in politics wait are, are we yeah was there a but <laughs> uh, i don't know i felt like it's still kind of questionable that I, I was gonna say that that's a questionable premise for a president but then i just remembered what life we're living in today. <laughs> yeah so no, I, I guess remember. Not, yeah, I remember when we first talked about it uh, as an idea. You were like, you were very hard on the idea that it's some that it was something that could happen. And yeah. then, and then 2016 happened, and there was a part of me in the back of my mind thinking, "Is it really that hard to believe now?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. True, I'm pretty man, sure. True. I'm pretty sure like Luther has more tact than Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lex Luthor I mean I haven't read every single Lex Luthor comic, but there's a chance he hasn't uh dog whistled as many white supremacists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I don't 
to be honest, I've never associated him with white supremacist ever. So he's he's way better than Donald Trump in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing about how they ended that President Lex storyline yeah. was in, in uh, Superman Batman, he just ends up putting on his uh, that green and purple power armor and he just goes nuts and starts attacking the city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what it kind of, like, not to go on too much of a tangent, but it kind of reminds me of um, another version of a story that did something similar, but I think it did it better was... Uh, Norman Osborn being the head of Shield, yeah, and or Hammer, or yeah, or Hammer, and so for those of you listening, at one point in the Marvel universe, Norman Osborn, who is the Green Goblin, becomes the he saves the world from an alien invasion, and as a result, they make him the head of Shield, and you know, Shield becomes renamed Hammer, so it's like the the Marvel Universe premier uh, spy intelligence agency. Mm-hmm. And a worldwide peacekeeping task force, basically. Yeah. And a lot of the story buildup there was about how um, Norman Osborn eventually uses the his position of power to like do shady things. And, you know, he, he tries to prop up this image of himself. But eventually, you know, as as people begin to resist him and as uh, the cracks begin to show, he begins to lose his sanity and ultimately it ends with him going nuts and trying to take everybody on too. But I thought that was done in a far better way than what they had tried to do with Lex Luthor. Yeah. Yeah. The execution of that idea was a lot better. Yeah. Like I, I think the thing is I can believe that Norman Osborn was on the edge of sanity anyways. So, like, the tipping point wasn't very far for him to go from someone trying to maintain his image to, you know, just giving up on it and deciding, screw this, I'm just going to kill you all. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Lex Luthor never really had that. He was always uh, a dude who had his composure. Yeah. Yeah. So to make me believe that, he, you know, that it was just too much for him and he would just lose his crap and just decide, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go scorched earth on all these people. It's a little, it's a little out of character for him. Yeah. The, the thing about the Osborne story in that whole Dark Reign era that did kind of uh, throw me off a bit was, or that not threw me off, but just made me question uh, it kind of pushed the strains of my ability to suspend disbelief was the fact that they gave him the power in the first place because unlike Lex Luthor, Norman Osborn, he was someone with a clear criminal record, man. Like it, He was it revealed like, to be yeah, Green he was Goblin. he revealed to be the Green Goblin. This is a dude who's, you know, he, he he's thrown young women off bridges. You know, it's like, how, <laughs> how can you let somebody who, who does that become uh, the leader of... Uh, the International Peacekeeping Task Force. Be careful, <laughs> be careful what you say, Drew, because at some point someone's going to murder someone <laughs> and then they're going to run for office and they're going to get it. And then I'll just be like, is it that hard to believe now, Drew? 
Is it hard to believe that we live in a world where Jeffrey Dahmer is now the Secretary of State? <laughs> we've, got a, we've got serial killers in the in the cabinet. <laughs> you know, I remember uh, earlier when we were talking about this, we, we had some funny uh, ideas for for. Uh, comic book characters as presidents and, and one of the guys that you said was the Punisher. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he's got a good chance of winning. He's hard on, he's tough on crime. He's pro guns. He's, he's, he's a, a veteran. He's a veteran. He's a natural Republican candidate. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would support Frank Castle as Punisher, man. I mean, the only thing that'd be tough to overlook is that he, uh, He's, he's murdered, like, thousands of people. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> Granted, you, you could easily talk yourself into believing that all those thousands of people that he killed deserve to be killed. Yeah. But uh, it, I think the concern is that his his decision to, to do all that uh, shows a great disrespect to the judicial branch. Uh, I was going to say that it shows a pretty pretty large amount or it shows a lack of self-control <laughs> but <laughs> you um, have to be in control in order to kill thousands of people though uh, it takes discipline to execute schemes that where you can uh you know successfully kill a lot of uh enemy gunmen or you know people that you know they're not necessarily defenseless innocence okay. or anything no, He's not, I'll, I'll concede that but i will i will say my other concern would be uh his i i think i'd be too concerned about his bloodlust <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't maybe it says more about me maybe i just don't have the stomach for it but like i i don't he, know that I, castle he would clean up the swamp man he would clean up the swamp. He would get rid of all the crooked politicians, man. Well, I guess if by clean up you mean fill it with corpses. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> that's uh, not my thing. What Dude, about... Punisher could yeah. be president and his vice president could be solo. <laughs> While Solo lives, terror dies. <laughs> that, that's a that's a funny slogan to run for for president on, man. That that'd be a good one. <laughs> uh, what were you about to say? I, I was gonna ask you what you think about President Tony Stark. Um, I, I guess I'd be fine with him. I think he'd be very competent. And, uh, you know, very forward-thinking, and he's got a lot of uh, probably great ideas, but I think I'd be more inclined to take uh, President Bruce Wayne over Tony Stark. Okay, um, okay. Because, you know, Stark is a drunk. <laughs> he's a recovering alcoholic, man. He's a recovering alcoholic, and if I've ever known anything about recovering alcoholics, it's just that they tend to... They tend to beat people, so... <laughs> 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 so, 
So I think there's there's a chance that there's some other hidden secrets in his past. <laughs> well, Tony Stark is a philanderer, so yeah, there's that. I'm sure there can be a lot of scandals. Uh, what about Hank Pym? Um, I definitely wouldn't vote for a wife beater. <laughs> yeah man uh that is uh he he's a wife beater he's incredibly insecure yeah if anything the greater crime is that he's incredibly insecure <laughs> he's a man with just a diminished sense of ego and like i just don't respect him <laughs> So if he became president, you just you just wouldn't take him seriously. I wouldn't take him seriously. No, no, sir. Any other characters stand out to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's tough. I've been sitting here this whole time thinking like who would make a bad president, and I don't. Well, it's like you said. It just feels like pick any supervillain, and I guess, I guess. Pick any supervillain, and they automatically make the list for worst president. But here's one that I just came up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just was I was thinking about it, and I was like, maybe the absorbing man, because <laughs> I remember you telling me the story about how you looked at his Marvel card, and on the back of his Marvel card, his intelligence was one. Yeah. And when you were a kid, you were like. This guy must be like an imbecile. He's dumb as rocks. <laughs> because nobody has an intelligence of one. <laughs> yeah, he was like the only the only person in the in the entire Marvel Marvel universe who had his uh, intelligence rated at as one, I think. I want to uh, say Rhino might have been at one too. Okay, yeah, there's like a, a few guys. Yeah. But it was it was pretty it was, it was rare. pretty bad because because yeah. two was supposed to be average intelligence. Yeah, so I assume that Absorbing Man doesn't even know how to tie his own shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I so, thought he had some sort of mental issue. Yeah. <laughs> or disability. Yeah, so that being said, like, between him and Lex Luthor, at least at least I can assume that Lex Luthor would do some things right as president, <laughs> but Absorbing Man, there's a chance he'd be worse just because he'd dumb. He'd be too incompetent. Yeah, yeah. All right. What if you had to pick uh, a hero or someone you know, like someone that's not a supervillain? Who would who would be a bad president just by their demeanor and their skills or abilities, personality? A hero, a hero who would be a bad president? Yeah. So I mean, that's what you're asking, right? Like, if I can pick. Yeah, that's what someone... I'm asking. Okay. Oof. So somebody like like D Man, you know, like just random hobo off the street. Oh who, wow! Uh, has a loose grip on reality. <laughs> Man, I feel bad. For no no disrespect dude. to D Man. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect. He just a bona fide scrub. <laughs> yeah, that's all it is, man. I don't mean he to got, disrespect him. He got no heart. He got no hands. He's just a bona fide scrub. No disrespect, though. No disrespect. 
he would be a horrible president, but I'm not, yeah, no disrespect, man. <laughs> well, I mean, the first name that came up was actually Hank Pym, so <laughs> I do think Hank, like seriously speaking, I think Hank Pym probably be, probably wouldn't be he he's proven himself at least okay, at least in my memory of him, the the ultimate version of him, he's proven himself to be someone who is incredibly unstable. So, um, yeah, even in the six one six universe, that version of Hank Pym is pretty unstable. Remember how he always had multiple identities because he was so insecure. He kept changing his his yeah, costume. Yeah, and his, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there we go. The Pym particles messed with his mind too. He he was a little mentally unstable. Did the Pym particles really do something to him? Well, there was that time when he was a. Uh... Did you ever read Avengers Forever? Avengers for oh yeah 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 uh the, so, the so that one but, the tall parter right we can't yeah 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 you know how that story took uh, Avengers multiple Avengers from different points in yeah, time yeah, yeah. and put them together as a team so they could uh, team he up. He was with on the Kang team as Yellow Jacket and as Giant Man, wasn't he? Yeah, like yeah. there were two the, versions of him on the team. Exactly, pulled from different points in time, and and the Giant Man version was the then current incarnation of him so he was he was normal but the yellow jacket version was i think that was from like the era of comics from the 60s not the, uh, the 70s or 80s uh -huh. and that version of yellow jacket he was uh off his rocker man i do remember that because that wasn't that the version of him that beat his wife i think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why we've you find that funny? <laughs> I, I don't know either, man. I mean, like, I respect women, and I would never, I am, I would never condone that sort of behavior unless someone asked for it. <laughs> oh, All right, <gosh>. then. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm like this. <laughs> uh, I gotta catch my breath, man. <laughs> I was. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's uh, dive into some of our favorite 50th issues. So, just to be just to be clear, this is not a comprehensive list or ranking of all the greatest. 50th issues in comics or anything like that. This is just simply something we thought of, uh, just to, just a list of comics that we thought of to, to gush over that happened to be issue 50s. Um, yeah, so with that said, Albert, let me ask you, what makes a memorable 50th issue or even just uh, a memorable anniversary issue? Um, so the thing about 50th issues is they're usually a big deal in comics. So whenever one of them comes in, like the, the comic books tend to throw a lot of attention to it because it's a, it's a milestone period for a comic to make it to 50 issues. So, um, so usually it's, it's like some sort of turning point in the in the overall ongoing narrative of the story or you know no no i'd say 
I'd say that's the case. It's it's usually some sort of turning point in the overall uh, mm-hmm. on long term ongoing narrative of the story. So, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that we that we were meant that we were talking about that we mentioned outside of the podcast and talking about it was so when you asked me to originally pick uh when you asked me to to do this topic i i had a hard time coming up with issue 50s because it's a very specific thing in my my recollection of a lot of comics and i've read you know a pretty fair amount of comics but my recollection isn't that great so i had to like look at my library and i had to go well, what's what are some comics that I have that have made it all the way to a point where they can where they've had fifty issues? So I was mm-hmm. looking through my library. I was looking at the different comics that I had, and I found something. And originally, I I didn't realize it was an issue fifty, but I looked at it and I was like, oh wait, I know that story. It, like it just by looking at the cover, it jumped out at me. So. We were talking about it, and I mentioned that to you, and you basically said, well, I mean, that should be an indicator of a quality story or comic right there mm-hmm. in and of itself, is the fact yeah. that, you know, if even if you don't have, even if you just look at the cover, for you to be able to recall enough of it where you go, oh, shoot, I remember this issue, like, that says something about that comic, right? Absolutely. So I I think that's one of the, the signs or and that certainly helped me put into perspective like how to how how to decide what comics made my uh favorite number fifty issues. Yeah, makes sense man. I definitely agree completely I was also another thing that I thought of uh, is that for some reason in comics they always take like these when you get to like issue twenty five or fifty or all the twenty five issue increments they tend to be uh, like special issues it's like some kind of anniversary issue yeah uh, and a lot of times that means uh, well maybe maybe not as much nowadays but sometimes it it means the issues are a little thicker. Like yeah. Maybe, maybe it's a double sized issue or in the nineties, maybe it had a, a gimmick cover, like a foil cover, foil yeah. embossed or something or a die cut cover like that Wolverine comic from the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so like little elements like that make the comic memorable. Um, yeah. Makes it feel, does make it feel special, but ultimately it's like you said, man, the fact that you can remember the story, I think that says a lot. It it it's it's something that it's the reason why we read comics, you know? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're gonna read something and it's something you can't remember, uh, you know, even whether it's uh years down the line or even just a few months, or heck, even a couple of weeks later, if you can't remember what you read. What was the point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say that my my memory isn't the greatest, especially because I do read so many comics. But at the very least, I usually, I pretty much always remember 
whether I enjoyed the experience or not. You know, like even if I don't remember every element of the plot with uh, with extreme clarity, at the very least, if I look at a cover, I can think, oh yeah, I read that one and I enjoyed it, or I read that one and that sucked. Yeah. But sometimes if I read, if I look at the cover and I think, wait, I think I read this, but I don't remember anything about it. That that it's probably indicates, sign. yeah, that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to mention is, especially like the other, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is, I feel like nowadays, uh, issue fifties are even harder to come by because it feels like it feels like they're constantly restarting comics. Uh, yeah, they're constantly re-numbering comics. Yeah. Yep. So we're at a point in time where I haven't, unless they're they're trying to cash in on the fact that the comic is about to hit this milestone number. Um, like no comics that I know of have made it in recent years, at least to to issue fifty, or at, at least from the big two. You know, uh, there yeah. are some. Uh, in, you know, independent press comics that have gone on for a long time, or Image Comics, or you know, Valiant, or what have you. Um, so, there, there are, uh, there are things that make it to fifty, but it, it's, it's certainly not as much as it used to be. Yeah, yeah. It, it I think it's definitely a combination of Marvel and DC. Definitely Marvel. Uh, constantly renumbering their series to to launch with a new number one over and over again. But I think another aspect of it is that stuff gets canceled a lot too. Yeah, that's true. A lot of stuff. It's, it seems like there's a lot of uh, comics that just don't sell too well. And yeah, they don't unfortunately, make it. just don't make it. Yeah. It uh, acts before they hit issue 10 sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So you want to jump into the list a little bit, and uh, you want to give the our fine listeners one of your picks. Yeah, yeah. Well, since we were just talking about the presidency a few minutes ago, let's talk about one of the more uh, famous political comics of recent years. Let's go with Ex Machina. Ex Machina number fifty. So right. Ex Machina, for those of you who aren't familiar, was a 50-issue series. So this is actually the last issue of the of the whole series. But it, it was a 50-issue series published by Wildstorm Comics, which was an imprint of DC back during the second golden age of comics in the early to mid-2000s. <laughs> Written by Brian K. Vaughn with art by Tony Harris. Uh, this issue 50 had colors by J.D. Mettler and was lettered by Jared K. Fletcher. Ex Machina is about a superhero. Ex Machina, the series, is about a superhero named Mitchell Hundred who mysteriously gains these powers that allow him to speak to and communicate with machines. Any kind of machinery would uh, obey his commands uh, that he vocalized. And he ends up using his powers to, to be kind of like this rocketeer-style hero. Uh, what ends up happening is he kind of springboards off the fame of being a hero in New York City. 
stops being a superhero and ends up running for mayor and he becomes mayor. So Ex Machina is the story of his four years as mayor of New York in the, and it's set in the early 2000s. <clears throat> so that's the premise of Ex Machina. I mean, it's a 50 issue series and there's a lot, a lot of depth to it. And it's written by BKV, one of our favorite writers. So, you know, it's good. Mm. Definitely one of these days we'll probably devote a, a lengthier episode solely to Ex Machina. But yeah, let's talk about Ex Machina number 50 and what makes this uh, an outstanding 50th issue. So Ex Machina number 50, the thing about it is um, it being the end of the series, it's... Ex Machina as a series is a series that builds up to to this issue uh, in particular. And... There are a lot of things that we we don't want to spoil for those of you who might read it because it's just part of the journey and part of the fun of reading the series. So we're, we're going to be a little vague about it, but I will say that Ex Machina is the culmination of all of the years of everything that uh, Brian K. Vaughn had been building up to. And... One of the things that we tend to hear from a lot of people is that, <laughs> oddly enough, we tend to hear how much people actually hate this issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I remember, like, the the series ended well before I, I had a chance to read it because I, I, I bought the entire series in deluxe hardcover edition and... I, I liked Brian K. Vaughn, so I wanted to I, I knew I wanted to own it, I knew I wanted to read it, and I I just remember that a lot of people were dissatisfied with the ending, and then so even as when I finally just did decide to read the series, that was always in the back of my mind. And when I got to the end, it wasn't it wasn't yeah, I didn't see what the big deal was. I didn't see why people hated it. I it was lost on me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think part of the problem was the, the same problem that people have with a lot of endings to beloved series is that some people just have their expectations set so high that they're unrealistic and they're not really able to appreciate a story for what it is. All they can see it for is what it is not. Yeah. And, and that's not really the proper way to critique a piece of fiction you know like you don't judge something based on what you want it to be you, you're supposed to judge it based on what it actually is so you you need to examine it on its own merits and for a lot of people they can't really separate that part of their brain from the part that just wants to see what they want you know like the, the outcome yeah. that they want for the characters because uh, i don't think this is too much of a spoiler but this is uh this is not a really upbeat comic. It's not a really upbeat comic in general, and it's not really an upbeat ending. Yeah, um, yeah. And if if people were expecting something that would uh, uplift their spirits or give everybody all their favorite characters a chance to ride off into the sunset uh, with a happy ending, yeah. Well. They weren't really paying attention to the rest of the series because it's pretty. It was pretty obvious from issue one that that wasn't going to happen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will so, say this. Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. Like, the other thing that I would include in that assessment is that <clears throat> I was uh, I was actually watching a video on uh, on YouTube the other day. It's a channel I follow called Wisecrack, where they were talking about why so many people are dissatisfied with the endings of things, and mm-hmm. it's it's always it always feels like there's this sense that everything that led up to it was so good, right? Because everyone had nothing but positive things to say. And then for some weird reason, it always feels like the very final arc or issue of the story is just this massive letdown because they feel like everything that was set up was suddenly pulled... The the sense is that it was just pulled, you know, it was pulled from beneath, from underneath them. So there's Mm -hmm. this, almost this sense that they were robbed of something, you know? And they just end up being extra angry about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think there's a difference between being uh, unsatisfied with an ending and being angry with an ending, you know? And I think, I think that angry kind of fan if you call it a fan um you know that's the type of person that has i think a real self-entitlement to being entertained the way that he wants to be entertained yeah so i feel like it's really hard to uh convince that type of person any other option you know but yeah, yeah, yeah. ex machina number 50 i'll say that I'm not going to give away any spoilers for the story itself, but I'm just going to say that I found it emotionally satisfying. And when we talked about what makes a memorable 50th issue, this was a memorable one because it's one of the rare comics that intentionally ended at issue 50. You know, this wasn't something that got suddenly canceled and they had to end it. This was planned. This was a planned ending, which is more than a lot of comics can say it was the and culmination it, of like mm-hmm. the entire 50 issues. So, you know, there was, there was going to be some big revelations. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like everything that I needed answered was answered uh, in a satisfactory manner. I felt like I got closure for everybody's character arcs. Um, and I, yeah, there might've been some things that, left me feeling uneasy or or made me wish I wish you know things didn't turn out that way but that's more in the sense that I felt invested in the characters you know because mm-hmm. I didn't want like at that but after you read a you know how when you read a story you, you start to care for the characters and empathize with them um and you, sometimes that means you just don't want bad stuff to happen to them um or you don't want uh you know, negative outcomes for them. But a lot of the stuff that happens to all of the characters in general in the series, they tend to be uh, non-optimal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So so in that sense, it's like it kind of hurts. Yeah. But it, it's from, a, from just a, a perspective of appreciating the story, you know, I, I got to give them credit for yeah. T- telling a story 
where they're able to hit my emotions because of how deftly they've yeah, portrayed yeah, yeah. these characters, you know? Like, there, yeah. there's a lot of other comics that, that just end, and I'm like, you know, it's over, and I don't really think about it too much. They don't really hit me on an emotional level. But I remember when I first read this last issue, I was like, man, this was heavy. And I, it was something that lingered in my gut for a couple of days. And mm-hmm. even even now, um, when I think about the series, that's one of the issues that I'll, I'll flip to because it was so memorable. Yeah. I mean, I want to piggyback on what you said earlier about how um, you become invested in these characters and in the stories. Like, one of the things... I, I've had conversations with other people who are avid readers, and sometimes I hear this sentiment where um, they'll say something to me like, I don't understand why someone would want to read a sad story, and they just talk about how they want to read, like, happy stories, right? And... I don't get that, man. I don't I don't agree. Like, I, I do get that, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> I don't get it, and I don't agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's what I'd say: like my my, I always feel like my response to that sort of logic is that if okay, if you look at writing as uh, as art as a form of expressionism, then I think it should be a testament to its ability to like mimic real like emotional states. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you read something and it gets you to feel fear or it gets you to feel pathos or it gets you to feel joy, then there's, there should be something to be appreciated about the fact that there was such quality in the level of craft that it was able to do that to you. Right? Yeah, it's evocative. Exactly. There's there's yeah. there is power in in the words and the art of the writer or the artist to to evoke these feelings in you, and that's yeah. that's a rare ability in anything, you know. Yeah, totally, right? man. Art should make you feel something. Yeah, you're yeah. not feeling it. Why are you reading it? Why are yeah. you looking at it? Why are you, you listening to your it? You know. Time? Go exactly. listen to some Nelly. <laughs> Get some country grammar, man. <laughs> uh, go listen Actually, to some the- biscuit. Actually, on the second page of Ex Machina number 50, the, the, the first panel of the second page, uh, Mitchell 100, the, the protagonist, this is what he says, his dialogue. It says, if you follow any story to its real conclusion, you always get the same thing. Regret, pain, loss. That's pretty... So, pretty much says it all right there man yeah that's pretty downbeat yeah 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 Yeah, i would yeah i would definitely highly recommend reading ex machina maybe don't start with issue 50 yeah (laughs) start with issue one but Um, the the issue 50 here was a powerful issue 50 
Yeah, I think some of the other ones on our list, if you just wanted to jump in and read the, those issues, you could totally do that. But with Ex Machina, uh, yeah, I would highly recommend reading from issue one because this is really a long-form novel. And I think you can still appreciate issue 50, but then uh, you'll just be missing a whole ton of context and the impact probably won't be anything nearly as strong as it would be. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's a that that's a good one, man. It's a good one. Yeah, another one on our on our list. This is more my pick, just because uh, it's something that I really liked. Uh, but it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number fifty, and I'm talking about the original. Uh, run from Mirage Studios. So this was back in uh, the early 90s because as you probably know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a series started in the early 80s uh, as it was self-published by uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Um, And as it became a worldwide phenomenon, they continued to publish it, but they weren't really drawing and writing it anymore it kind of became basically like an anthology series where a bunch of different uh, independent creators would would take turns telling stories set in their universe or just featuring the characters that weren't even really in continuity like there were stories that took them into like other dimensions or or just they were kind of like elseworld stories where the turtles were in like feudal japan or something like that Mm. so for a, for a, a good chunk of issues, it moved away from the continuity that Eastman and Laird had established. But with issue 50, they came back and made a concerted effort to continue their continuity. Um, so they, they didn't draw and write uh, the issues after this. Well, I think they still uh, wrote the stories, but they didn't. This was the last issue where they did the art together. So it was kind of like a return of the, of the masters, you know, like the guys who created the comic come back and do it the same way that they were doing it when they first began. And issue 50 is the start of a really long uh, story called City at War, which over the years has become kind of a tentpole uh, storyline in the TMNT mythos. So just a quick summary or a synopsis of City at War. Basically, at at this point in time, uh, the Turtles had already defeated Shredder, uh, but they'd been recuperating in Northampton, Massachusetts, on Casey Jones' family farm. They've just kind of been recuperating from their wounds and finding themselves living out there um, in isolation with Master Splinter, April, Casey. And at this point, uh, but when issue 50 comes along, everybody's going to, they basically start going their separate ways. So Master Splinter is uh, still in at the farm, uh, enjoying nature. Uh, the turtles end up going back to New York City. Uh, I think April, she's, she's on a plane flight heading somewhere. Casey Jones is going somewhere. I think he's like about to hit on, hit a road, go on a road trip. And this issue follows each of their journeys. And the thing that makes this 
issue memorable, even though it's just part one of a 13-part story, is that almost the entire issue, it's a double-sized issue, about 40 pages or so. It's almost a wordless issue. Like, there's a couple of... Uh, there's maybe maybe three or four word balloons in this entire story. And the, the story follows April, Splinter, Casey, and the Turtles in their separate journeys. And there's also uh, another element where an another story that you follow where it's just some guy who lives in this uh, kind of beat up old apartment above a porn shop. And the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I laughed. <laughs> It's a funny detail. Like, well, who wants to live above a porn shop, man? Like, that kind of tells you the kind of squalor that this dude's living in. I was going to say, I, I, I feel like I, I giggled like a schoolgirl just at the thought of something, you know, even slightly salacious. <laughs> <laughs> so that was me kind of doing a teehee. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing about City at War is that the reason why it's called that is because the remnants of the Foot Clan that are left uh, in the wake of Shredder's death, they're they're all kind of vying for control. Um, so it it's all these different factions of of the Foot Clan who are fighting each other and causing chaos in the city. And this is where it all starts. Um, and, and for some reason, I don't know why, but I think a Foot Ninja ends up planting a bomb in the porn shop. So so the story is kind of like. It, it's it's wordless, so you it, you gotta kind of pay attention because the scenes keep skipping around. But when the bomb explodes, everything kind of shatters and fragments. And the way that it's portrayed in the art, you really get a sense of how all these changes that are happening are sending everybody in these wildly different directions. And you just want to know how is that going to affect what's to come, because this is really a prologue, but it's also it's a prologue to a, a long storyline, but if you just read it on its own, it's really a poetic masterclass in the art of sequential storytelling without using words. Because the only words that are in this comic, that that old man who's living above the porn shop, he turns on the TV in his apartment to watch the news. And there's like three different instances where you hear the word, you can read the word balloons from coming from the TV because the news that's being reported is just depressing world news. Like, you know, like things are, things are going bad in, in, uh, in the Soviet union or, or stuff like that. So it's, it's a comic that you can really study for the art and really appreciate that look of the turtles, you know, cause it, it's, it's not something, it's not really how people draw the turtles nowadays in, in comics. Like, I, I enjoy the IDW stuff, and the artists there have their own style, and it's cool, but it's also really cool just to check out Eastman and Laird's style. And even, even the cover to issue 50, man, it, it's a, an homage to their very first issue. So, yeah, yeah this, I've, I've always just thought this was a really memorable issue of uh, Ninja Turtles. I don't even know if it's my favorite issue of the series, but uh, for anyone who's into the turtles, this is something that you got to check out. If if you haven't checked out the original Mirage Run, that's some good stuff. Like if you're if you're a younger reader who 
who's jumped on the turtles because of the cartoons or or uh, the movies or uh, the IDW series. Yeah, try to seek out some of the older stuff too. I, I think some of it's on Comixology and in trades. Um, it's worth looking up. It's definitely on Comixology. It was on sale. It might still be on sale now, but it was definitely on sale oh. last week. Um, oh, nice. I remember seeing that, like those old classic Turtles uh, comics. I, I've never read them just because uh, I never had access to them when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. But it was the sort of thing that I would see in shops all the time. And it's they've, they've got a real gritty look to them. But it's, I mean, the funny thing is it's uh, the Turtles as a concept started out as a parody of Daredevil. Daredevil. Yeah. Yeah. By Frank Miller. And, Mm -hmm. but they, I don't know. They took those elements of grittiness and they, they made something that was, I didn't really feel like it was a parody. I mean, if anything, it was probably more of a homage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And yeah. And uh, they, they ultimately they ended up creating something that was so unique to them and so good that you know that it's been able to survive even today in like all these different iterations you know yeah. uh, but but those original turtles was they were they were they were something else. I mean, they like when the when those first comics came out, they they just kind of blew the blew the comics world away. They took the comics world by storm, actually. <laughs> yeah, they really yeah. impacted the industry, man. Uh, yeah, that first issue uh, just became a phenomenon. They ended up continuing it, and it became an empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, and, it's something yeah, that and, I do. And like, I think for us, we grew up watching the the late '80s, early '90s cartoons, so we were kind of late to the actual comics. But yeah, um, I actually got my hands on a bunch of issues of Ninja Turtles, uh, of the Mirage Turtles, uh, from various sales. But this one time, I went to Lee's Comics. This was probably maybe seven or eight years ago now and I, I was just looking in their 50 cent bin and I just found like a f- big chunk of probably 25 or, or 30 random issues so I had to I had to buy them man because like some of them I had read already nice. but but uh I had to own them too you know yeah but yeah the, yeah the thing that makes it tough is that some of those issues especially the ones when it was a uh, kind of an anthology really hard to find and kind of expensive too so there's a chance i'll never complete my collection but Mm. i'm pretty happy with the ones that i do own and one of the ones i own is issue 50 which is something i would recommend people to check out and i think because the stuff that's really hard to find is the stuff that was out of continuity um but because this is in continuity i think it's actually uh still in print there's some weird stuff with uh, some of the random issues because uh, because of creators' rights and, and ownership issues. So I think right, that's right. why some of the stuff get reprinted. Right. Oh. 
What's next on our list, Albert? Well, so I mentioned earlier that when you proposed this uh, this topic, I was looking at my library, and the comic that I noticed that I had a large chunk of was The Walking Dead. So I was like, okay, let's see what issue 50 of The Walking Dead looks like. And I, I, I jumped to it, and it's on the cover. It's a picture of Carl, and uh, if you don't know Carl, he's you know the son of the main character, uh, and he's he's it's it's a picture of him pulling out a gun and like warding off you know uh, an army of hands that are like clawing at him, and just from that image alone, I. I immediately was able to recall most of that story. So mm-hmm. so I was confident in picking The Walking Dead number 50 as one of the memorable number 50s on my list. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, just a brief premise of the series as a whole. Um, you know, I'm... I'm not going to assume that everybody knows what Walking Dead is, but, you know, <laughs> maybe there's there's someone who, uh, you know, just came out of a time capsule or, or a bunker and they've never, they've never, uh, this is their first access to a podcast. Maybe they're listening to it on or a Zoom. Maybe, Zoom. maybe somebody <laughs> in the future, so far in the future, is listening to our podcast and at that point... The Walking Dead has faded away, but Between the Gutters still lives on. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> we are infinite. <laughs> <laughs> but the well, we did Dead... talk about The Walking Dead in depth uh, in episode, uh, let me see, episode 32, right, with Zach and Shanice, and we talked about our post-apocalyptic recommendations. Yeah, we did. We did. You know, but I, I, I presume that every podcast is someone's first new podcast. So that's a, that's a good point. So I don't. But if anyone I don't, wants to hear more about Walking Dead, check out episode thirty-two. There we go. <laughs> so The Walking Dead is a post-apocalyptic zombie story, and it's just the way that Robert Kirkman describes it is, you know. What if it was the zombie story that never ends? And that's that's the basic uh, general idea of what The Walking Dead is about. It's just, you know, what society looks like in in the post-apocalyptic uh, zombie-verse, whatever you want to call it. So, uh, I'm not going to... walking The Walking Dead number 50 isn't an issue that I really feel... Uh, So I mentioned earlier that the number 50 issues tends to be this huge turning point for a lot of stories and their ongoing narrative. So even though I've prefaced it with that that statement, I will say that I'm not going to uh, ruin, like, what happens in it by saying you know, this person dies or that person dies or whatever, like, nothing so specific, but what I can say about The Walking Dead number 50 is it's it's a pretty good standalone issue uh, 
it's yeah, it's a pretty good standalone issue. And uh, the main character of The Walking Dead, the point of view character that we tend to follow, is uh, a police officer by the name of Rick Grimes. And a lot of the story is about him trying to keep his family together. And what ends up happening uh, in everything prior to issue 50 leads up to to him and his son being separated from the the group at large. And what ends up happening is Rick ends up Rick ends up taking his son uh, and he ends up holding up in a abandoned house. And even though he's you know he's been able to get his son away from danger and now they're in this house he's been injured and he's messed up and right now this as the story stands it's just carl and rick in this house and rick is pretty much incapacitated so the story is really about carl and what ends up happening in the story is carl is carl so we've mentioned in other previous podcasts, how much I like stories about, you know, children exhibiting like resiliency in the face of just overwhelming circumstances. And I think this is an example of one of those kinds of stories that really gets to me because in the story, he's, he responds the way that any child would under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And he's just frustrated by everything that's happened by everything that's gone wrong. And now on top of that, you know, his father, like, who he relies on to be his father to protect him, can't even do that. So, you know, he's he's just mad at his father for, for failing him on some level, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at one point, uh, you know, as, as almost as a... At, at one point... To, to, to drive that point home that, you know, this is the breaking point between him being a child and him becoming an adult. Uh, Carl, you know, he goes out to outside of the house and there are these two zombies there and he uses his wits and to, to, to lure the zombies to try to kill him. Huh? And he uses a gun. Oh yeah, he uses his wits and he uses a gun to try to kill them, but then what ends up... So he's pretty confident, you know, because, you know, zombies are kind of dumb. But then the real... Uh, the real danger or or the real shock that happens is there's actually a third zombie that he isn't expecting. So, you know, he's he's no not quite in control of the situation as he thinks he is, but he outsmarts all three zombies and he kills all three zombies you know and he goes back in the house feeling pretty confident about himself and there's this whole speech he gives about how he gives this speech to his unconscious dad and he's just talking about how like i don't need you anymore and you know from here on out i'm gonna protect myself and you know just it's a it was a pretty, uh, yeah, it, it was a pretty, like, sad 
conversation yeah. to have, I think. But I just, I just reread it earlier tonight yeah, before yeah. we recorded and, and like the thing that it made me feel was it was very sincere, you know? Like it, yeah. this is a kid's uh emotions just being spoken or vocalized out loud, you know, he's not really like at the end of it, like he starts off thinking, well, after he kills the zombies, he starts thinking that he, he's, he is tough. You know, he starts thinking that he, he can do it, that, that he can take care of himself if his dad dies. And, and it feels, it really does feel like, you know, that's how a kid would think. Um, and if you're a kid listening to us and you think you disagree, uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what to do tell you. What do you know? Yeah, exactly. What do you know? Oh, kid. Grow up a bit. <laughs> I'll tell you how you think. <laughs> Shut up and eat your cereal. <laughs> Barbara's Morning Oat Crunch, the official cereal between the gutters. Sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> So you were talking about how this speech that Carl gives to his unconscious dad about how, you know, he's tough now and how he's grown, how it's a sincere speech, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's him kind of chest thumping, but it's also, I I guess it's the death of innocence. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And then the funny thing is, is that a little bit of time passes and they're in the house while his dad is either unconscious or, or just resting. And, and they're sitting, Carl's sitting in the dark next to his dad. And then his dad stirs a little bit and then he just groans and reaches for him. And the way that uh, Charlie Adlard draws it, it's like he, he draws Rick's face in, in shadow. So and uh, Carl just freaks out thinking that his dad has probably started turning into a zombie. So he, he freaks out, panics, starts crying a little bit, and he even picks up his gun and points it at, at his dad. And he, he uh, struggles with it and ends up crying and he realizes he can't, he can't do it. And, and what he says is, uh, I got the page right now. He says, I can't, I just, I can't be alone. I'm just a kid. I can't live on my own. Yeah. And it, it's just like a really sad scene, you know, like he, like a couple hours earlier, he was, he was crying, but he was saying, he was talking big, you know, he was like saying, I'm basically an adult. I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not, I don't get scared anymore. And everybody's going to die. And if you die, dad, I'll be okay because I can take care of myself. And then at, at this point, it's like, he just I wants can't to be, be a alone. kid. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, he, he just wants to be a kid in front yeah. of the TV eating his cereal. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting to me because, like, up to this point in terms of, like, Carl's character development, like, I don't think they really portrayed him too much as having much to do other than just being a kid that was ferried around between Rick and the rest of the family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really recall too much. I I mean, like he's, he's definitely a character who has scenes and stuff, but I I think this issue 
it was it's it's basically a two man play, you know, like a two man yeah, drop. Yeah, yeah. That's One of a the guys put it is unconscious most of the story. Yeah. So he you spend a lot of time solely in Carl's head, um, and you see him wrestle emotionally and mentally with this crazy situation he's got to face. And and yeah. the situation isn't isn't that he's in a world with zombies. The the crazy situation is that he thinks his dad is gonna die, and I think that's what the real scary thing is, you know, because the what's more horrifying, you know, just this idea that. The, this person you look up to your whole life and takes care of you and protects you is going to not be able to do that anymore. You know, like that, that's way more scary than, than zombies, you know, like your, so your, your parent of, you know, unconscious and sick, you don't know what's going to happen. That that's way more frightening than any uh, zombie. And I, I think that's why this issue resonates because it's it's got that universal um emotion to it you know like yeah, that's what yeah, separates yeah. this comic from your typical horror comic because the, the real horror is something that is something it's something that real people face yeah as opposed to just uh you know something jumping at you from the dark yeah and i will say that you know in terms of issue 50s like issue 50s being a milestone and a, a a milestone event like i mean this isn't necessarily something as big as you know uh the universe coming to an end or whatever but it's a it's emotionally devastating you know it's this moment yeah. like i really do feel like it's as an adult imagining how uh, or uh going back to how i thought as a child or trying to recollect how i thought as a child about crises like i feel like it's an accurate representation of like how a child deals with a crisis you know mm -hmm. and and just the emotional range that the kid goes through and to ultimately come out on the other side. So, yeah, so I do feel like it was a pretty big milestone in the sense that it was, again, this was the moment that Carl goes from being just this character that just needs to be protected to to a kid, to, to someone who... I guess has a little more agency if that's if that's a way to yeah. put it. He's, he's got depth. Yeah, yeah. You, you you come to realize that yeah he's a kid, but he's just as emotionally complex as any of the adults in the story. You know, like he's not just some little prop that yeah. they tug yeah. around, no, lug around with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. What you got Funny next? thing is, is that oh. when I read that issue, I, I, I always collected Walking Dead in trade paperbacks, so I never actually uh, knew what the cover looked like. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I didn't realize that was issue 50, but then when you when you uh, reminded me of Walking Dead number 50, I was like, oh, yeah, I got a 
I, I mean, I know I have it because I have the trades. So yeah, yeah. I, I just had to pull it out, and then uh, once I looked at it, I was once I once I uh, got to that point in the trade, I was like, oh yeah, I do remember this story. You know, like this is yeah, this was a pretty memorable uh, story arc. It's a yeah, it's a super memorable standalone uh, issue out of a bunch of uh, stories that and moments that jump out at you. You know, I, I would mm-hmm. definitely say it's one of the high points. Yeah. What else you got, Drew? One thing I got is uh, the Silver Surfer number 50. So this is the Silver Surfer comic that I grew up reading when I was a kid. It's uh, technically the Silver Surfer volume 3, issue 50. This was published in uh, June 1991, written by Jim Starlin, drawn by the legend Ron Lim. So this came out right before the Infinity Gauntlet. It's actually a direct prelude to the Infinity Gauntlet story. Uh, and it's right around the time when I first started reading comics, so it, it it's always had a special place in my heart. It wasn't the first Silver Surfer comic I bought. The first issue I bought, or I mean, I guess my mom bought it for me, <laughs> but it was the first one I I owned was issue 54. But at, at some point, um, I remember being able to go back and, and track down some of the earlier issues. And issue 50 was a more expensive issue to track down uh, because it was the 90s and and that was the era of gimmick covers. And they gave Silver Surfer number 50 uh, a foil cover. So the Silver Surfer on the cover, he's actually this embossed foil uh, imprint. I guess it, it works because it's the Silver Surfer. So it actually, you know, he actually looks silver. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of as far as gimmick covers go, I think it's one that works and it's a cool effect. Um, but outside of the memorability or how memorable the cover is, uh, the story is something that always stood out to me. And I'm not just saying that because I read this a hundred times when I was a kid. I still remember it really well. But even as an adult, when I reread it, it's something I can go back to and, and appreciate as a, a single standalone issue. And also as a chapter or a prelude to a bigger event as well. So Silver Surfer number 50, I'll, I'll tell you the synopsis right here. Basically at this point, the Silver Surfer has learned that Thanos has acquired all six Infinity Gems and he's assembled the Infinity Gauntlet. So the Surfer decides to go back to Earth uh, he he needs to he knows he needs to warn the Avengers. He needs to warn all of Earth's heroes that Thanos has the Infinity Gems and possesses godlike power. But as he's heading back to Earth, when he nears the moon, Thanos actually appears in as in the form of a stone golem. He's like this this rock version of Thanos, and and it's not really Thanos, but it's I guess it's his consciousness within this statue of him but you know it's super powerful and still can do the things that normal Thanos can do um but he ends up 
knocking Silver Surfer off course and hits, and they end up uh, landing on the moon, where they have a physical battle. But this, but Thanos also uses uh, his newfound powers to try and emotionally or psychologically destroy the Surfer. He he basically uses the mind gem to take a trip into the Silver Surfer's memories. So. As an anniversary issue goes, it works because it, it gives you the Silver Surfer's origin story, and it's stuff that you, we hadn't really seen in the comics before. Like we, we know that he uh, gave up his his uh, freedom and his life to become Galactus's herald, but this uh, issue sh- gives you some insight into what Silver Surfer, what Norrin Rad was like uh, as a kid growing up on the planet Zen La, his home planet. So you get to see he has a, a relationship, a strong relationship with his single father. Uh, I guess his mother died uh, in the past. I think I think she committed suicide or something. Whoa. And so it was just, yeah, it was, I think that happened in a previous issue or that flashback happened in a previous issue. Uh-huh. But uh, in this issue, it's, it's mostly you see him and his dad and his, his dad's like Zen Law is basically this utopian planet where they've solved all the problems of society and all they have to do now is uh, they're just bored people. So they're just finding new ways. They're devising new ways to entertain, uh, entertain themselves. And his dad ends up winning this award for creating, uh, I forget what exactly it is, but it's some kind of device that uh, allows people to uh, just have more entertainment in some kind of a mental recreation thing i don't know if that's like what exactly that is um is that like vr or something yeah i think so it's 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 not really explicitly portrayed it's just kind of uh discussed in the dialogue but he wins this award for it and and norin is obviously very proud of his father and you know he he continues to grow up into manhood and what ends up happening is that his his dad ends up getting it ends up being revealed by the news that his dad uh, plagiarized some of his research when he developed the thing that he won the award for. And Norin was so disappointed in his father that he basically like just turns his back to him. And this hurts his father so much that his father ends up committing suicide. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like the, in their society, like the, the worst kind of shame is, is, someone committing suicide because everything is supposed to be so perfect. So nobody really understands why anyone would want to commit suicide. And it, it just, uh, yeah, it, it's like a, this really massive, heavy thing for the surfer from Norn Rad. Um, and then, you know, time skips a little bit and you see the story of him. You see a scene of him sacrificing himself to be Galactus's herald. And throughout all this time, like these, all these flashbacks are interspersed with the Silver Surfer fighting Thanos's golem form. Because one thing I, I always thought was cool is is that the Surfer man he's he's got so much power and and mental strength that he can even resist one of the Infinity Gems. You know, like Thanos is using the Mind Gem to try and mess with his head, and the Surfer's fighting him every step of the way not wanting to let Thanos see all his memories and, and look into his soul, basically. 
So they, they keep fighting, but every time Surfer, uh, you know, destroys or blows up a part of Thanos' rock statue body, it just reassembles itself. And after uh, Thanos finally sees what happens to Norrin's father, basically figures him out and, and mocks him for being, you know, he, he's saying, like, Colin the Surfer, this guy who, who sees himself as this noble hero, but in the end... He's just a hypocrite because he couldn't even save his own father. And in fact, he was the, the reason why his father killed himself. And he just makes a mockery of him. So, it, it obviously doesn't end up sitting well with the surfer. And in, at the end of it, uh, he, he does use his power to not just blow up Thanos, but he, he actually turns all of his all the stone parts of him into into atomic ash so he can't reconstitute himself but at that point Thanos doesn't care he he basically feels like he's already won the battle and again this is just a simulacrum of Thanos yeah that he's using um and then the surfer and him exchange a couple more words at the end and then the surfer finally destroys the the head of the statue but it basically takes everything out of him. It, it uses up all of his strength. And you can see when he gets back on his board and, and continues on towards Earth, he's he's super messed up, man. He, he can't even stand up. He's fallen off his board, super dizzy. But there's this, uh, there's this whole internal monologue that fits with the theme of the story and explains a lot of his character where he's, He's just musing on what truth is and, and the reality of who he is now and who he used to be. And he's just questioning himself if if he is a hero or if he is just this hypocrite like Thanos made him out to be. Like, you know, he's been he's been shaken to the core. Um and it just ends with him crashing into Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, which leads directly into Infinity Gauntlet number one. So if you guys Listen and have have watched uh, Avengers: uh, Infinity, Infinity War. Uh, that first scene where you see the Hulk get shot to Earth and he ends up crashing through the skylight in Doctor Strange's house. That's that's a total riff on Silver Surfer number fifty because that's what happens to Silver Surfer. And at the beginning of Infinity Gauntlet number one, it's the Surfer who tells them, who tells Doctor Strange and Wong that Thanos is coming. So yeah, that's uh, Silver Surfer number fifty, man. It's it's a comic that I loved as a kid. Still something I can enjoy as an as an adult. Artwork is superb. It's Ron Lim at the top of his game. Nice. They're on my favorite character. It's a standalone story that tells you. Everything you need to know about what makes the character work and what makes him cool. So I would definitely recommend people to check it out. Uh, it's on Comixology or Marvel Unlimited, I'm sure. Yeah. It was something as a kid I would... I recognized the cover because it was just something that I would see everywhere. It's the one where Thanos is kind of in the backdrop. Where mm -hmm. and Silver Surfer is flying towards you on the cover, right? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I never actually read it. But yeah, that description of it does found, sound like it's a powerful duel of wits between two 
two enemies that just hate each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were heavyweights, yeah. and yeah, and Jim Starlin really took the time. If you if you go back and read his run on Silver Surfer, he he does a lot with Thanos and and the Surfer to to really build them up and and um, uh, lead into the Infinity Gauntlet. So yeah, it's 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 um I'd I'd say that prior to this I don't think Surfer and Thanos really had too much to do with each other, but when Starlin took over, he really integrated Thanos into the story. Um and he, he wasn't in every issue, but he was in a significant portion of the stories where you knew that he and the Surfer were if they weren't evenly matched, you could at least say that they were in the same uh, weight class. Mm. And uh, of course, when Thanos got the gems, he was on his own tier. But yeah, like they, they their battles were were rarely ever about just shooting stuff at each other, shooting energy blasts at each other. Mm. A lot of it was, um, it, a lot of it did take place on a psychological or uh, emotional, intellectual level. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, when I was a kid growing up, I, I think I grew up in the era where where that uh, where that relationship was at its height. So, mm-hmm. I had always known Thanos as a Silver Surfer villain. Like, yeah. Well, like, when we when you think of, like, heroes and you think of the villains that they're synonymous with, for me, it was always Thanos. It was Silver Surfer and Thanos. Same here. So, so yeah. So, it, it was interesting when they made the Avengers movie and they made Thanos the main villain and not having Silver Surfer there. I, I will admit, <laughs> that was a part of me in the back of my head where I was like, it feels a little incomplete. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. That, that, that whole scene with the Hulk where he crashes through the skylight and he's like, Thanos is coming. Yeah. I was like, man... That works, and it's cool that they homaged it. But that would have yeah. been so much doper with the surfer, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, as a kid, I didn't have access to a lot of comics, so all I had were the cards. And I remember I would read about Silver Surfer and Thanos all the time, and it always just felt like their rivalry was one for the ages, you know? Yep. Like. Yeah, I had my Spider-Man and Green Goblins, my Daredevil and uh, Bullseye or Daredevil and Kingpin, and Silver Surfer Wolverine and, and Sabretooth. Yeah, that one didn't really <laughs> sur- that. I mean, at the time, that one was up there, but it really didn't la- survive the test of time quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> if I have to say, yeah. yeah. Well, that was uh, Silver Surfer number 50. Um, what else do we got, man? I see on our list we got 100 Bullets number 50. Yep. So 100 Bullets is a series that's about... It's hard to describe. It's, it's, it's definitely a crime series. And it starts off with a man who... A man with a mysterious briefcase who approaches downtrodden strangers and offers them a chance at redemption. 
in the form of an unmarked gun with a hundred unmarked bullets that can be used in any way they want. And what this man does is he'll tell the, he'll go to these strangers and he'll tell them a story about that basically reveals something about their past and explains to them how they ended up in the situation they are. And he offers them the suitcase with the gun as a chance to either in their eyes, write the wrong that, that was committed to them or to, to really do whatever they want with it. Mm -hmm. And they could use, and he just leaves these suitcases with these seemingly random strangers and, if they take the gun and the bullets and they were to use it to murder someone, they would have, there would be no consequences from the law because the guns have a certain, um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but, but it, the, yeah, I don't know exactly what the technicalities of it are in terms of uh, how to explain yeah. why that is. But it's basically uh, what you said earlier. It's an, they're untraceable bullets. Um, so any investigation would not be able to proceed. Like, I don't, I don't know how that would affect things if somebody just walked into, uh, you know, a police precinct and, and shot up a bunch of cops, <laughs> you know, where there's cameras. <laughs> just get caught. But... The idea is that if you if you take these bullets and if you decide to uh, avenge yourself on the person that wronged you and you just, you know, you just like went up to the guy in his house and and capped him, then there was nothing that anybody could do to, to track you down. That yeah, was, that was the concept of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that it's described is that whoever owns the briefcase and whoever owns the gun has a carte blanche and... You know, if if any of you have ever read um, the Three Musketeers, a carte blanche essentially lets you get away with anything. It's you know, it's a get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and this was a series that, like Ex Machina, had an intended beginning, middle, and an end, and it ran for a hundred issues, and it was very deliberate in its storytelling. Brian Azzarello wrote it, drawn by Eduardo Riso. Um, yeah, Brian Azzarello is someone that we talk about a lot, and this was this was as far as I know the comic that put him on the map. And um, when I say that he was very deliberate about it, I like I am very uh, yeah, like I, I I'm super serious about that because the amount of detail that he just puts in the into the book overall. Like once once you finish reading it all the way through, and you re like when you reread it on a second go around, you realize just how much thought he put into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, issue fifty for a hundred bullets is a big one, and I this is another situation where I don't want to give away too much because if you do read it, it's something worth discovering for yourself so yeah. i'm i'm certainly not going to give away like the big details suffice it to say that 
issue, um, issue 50 of 100 Bullets is a big turning point in the series in that it's the it's the issue that reveals the the powers behind the briefcase uh, and why why it's why it has the protections that it has and why why the why is it that the the people that have access to these briefcases are able to commit these murders with impunity um yeah it reveals a, yeah. a great deal of the backstory that hadn't really been explicitly stated in the prior issues because the way that the premise is set up at, when you first start reading the series it kind of kind of get the impression that it could be more of like an anthology where there's this always this one guy named agent graves and he's always yeah. showing up to meet these people to give them to he, he gives them the briefcase with the guns and the bullets with the gun and the bullets and he also gives them irrefutable proof about the individual that wronged them and you know was the one responsible for them in their sad situation and you kind of as a reader you kind of see that this is happening uh again repeatedly. and again yeah. again and again and you don't really know exactly why yeah. but as you keep on reading each each of the stories um you kind of start to see there's some kind of connection um and you just don't really know what exactly it is because it's not explicitly spelled out like yeah there's there's no real it's 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 a mystery you know what it is the mystery and you kind of have to use your own mind and just be patient and continue reading in order to piece things together but when you get to issue 50 that's when a big piece of the puzzle is set yeah. in place because yeah. I, I would say it doesn't explain everything there are still quite a few things that that are mysterious after you after you finish issue 50 but when you get to issue 50 you'll definitely f start to feel like you like there's a purpose behind all the stuff that you've been reading all the mysteries that you've been wondering about you, it gives you confidence that they're not just stringing people along and trying to be yeah. mysterious for the sake of of hooking readers in but there's actually going to be a payoff because yeah. it gives you just enough to it's not. It's not really a tease. It's it's something substantial in issue fifty. It gives you it gives you something that'll help you uh, make start to make sense of it. And I think yeah. you read the series multiple times when you reread an issue like issue fifty, it, that'll really help you uh, see the foreshadowing and and all the things that were set into place as well. So yeah. it, it works. It really works as an issue um, in the middle of mm -hmm. a one hundred issue long series but it yeah. also if you were just to read it on its own it's it's still a solid uh thriller story because there's a there's a framing story and then there's the the part of the story that tells you the secrets behind the secrets yeah and it, framing story itself is compelling enough that it makes you want to keep on reading to the end of the issue um but yeah again i, I wouldn't say start with issue 50 <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
Yeah, and I'd add that I do feel like where you are when you get to the end of the series and where you are when you get to the beginning, issue 50 really is a turning point in the sense that you're right. The first few stories in in the series, they're a little disjointed, and you get this feeling that, yeah, it's almost like an anthology, like you said, where, you know, this secret figure goes to these strangers, tells them a story, and then, you know, gives them the opportunity to right the wrongs that have been committed on them, and you follow these characters, and that... And at the end of the story, that's the last of it. And you see Agent Graves move on to somebody else. So there's this sense that things are kind of disjointed and you're not really sure how things are connected except through Agent Graves and this uh, suitcase. Mm -hmm. But when you get to 50, yeah, this is, this is a big piece of the puzzle where you begin to feel the momentum, momentum shift towards whatever the big story is, whatever the big uh, motion is that's happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't start at issue 50, but it's a very good issue 50 uh, to read. Um, but if you're going to read it, I, you know, I recommend the whole series as a whole. And we'll, it's definitely something we're going to talk about more. Yeah. Pretty good chance this will be on the DC Top 25, right? Yes, sir. What you got next, but I, I guess we still have Marvel Top 25. Just one more left. <laughs> one more. Guys. Down to the wire. <laughs> yep. What you got next, Drew? Uh, Sandman, number 50. So this was... Uh, this, this, this is the Sandman series written by Neil Gaiman. Uh, you know, obviously very famous series, well-loved. It's very easy to find because it's perpetually in print. But mm-hmm. issue 50 in particular uh, was was drawn by P. Craig Russell, uh, mm-hmm. lettered by the incomparable Todd Klein. This issue is a... Giant-sized standalone issue, uh, but before we even try and sit, give a synopsis of it, uh, should probably explain a little bit about what Sandman is. Like, how how do you describe the premise of Sandman to somebody who's never checked it out before? So, the first thing that I want to say is it's many things. Um, <laughs> It's, I guess it's fantasy is, is how I would put it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like <clears throat> it's about the King of Dreams. Um, it's, it's the, it's his story and uh, it begins with the King of Dreams being uh, captured by men and and he's held in prison for many, many years. And that's that's where the story starts out. Eventually he gets out and he tries to put his life together. And you follow him on this journey through all these various different worlds as he tries to 
reconstruct his life and yeah i mean that's that's it's 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 a really hard story to to pin down because yeah. it just it just i feel like it just explores all kinds of literary tropes it, it it's a story that takes this neil gaiman takes the character of the sandman and uses him to as a vehicle to explore all sorts of different literary um tropes uh mm-hmm. yeah uh that's 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 the only way that i could really describe it because it's at, it starts out as being more horror but then it jumps into fantasy and it it just goes all over the place you know yeah a lot of uh mythology and aspects of folklore yeah just storytelling yeah because he yeah he is uh because morpheus who is the titular sandman he is the king of the of the dream what do you call it uh the dreaming the dreaming, yeah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Reminds me of that time I was trying to think of uh, that city where the gorillas are from. Gorilla City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but because Morpheus is the king of the dreaming, he, he has access to all all these uh, dreams and what are dreams, but untold stories, right? Like stories that haven't yeah, yeah. been written down or been made manifest, but he it's the series ends up being an exploration of a lot of that stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, literary depths to be, to be put yeah. here. I mean, it's his personal story too. Like he, I think it's fair to say he evolves a lot over the course of what? 75 yeah. issues. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he evolves a lot over the course of 75 issues, and you follow him on his journey of personal development. But, yeah, like, it's, it's really hard for me to describe what Sandman is in. I think that's like, a good description. Okay, okay. What we just said, I think I think that, that's a good description. Yeah. But how would you describe this issue, Albert? How would you describe Sandman number 50? So Sandman issue 50 is a is a pretty standalone story and what happens in it is it it takes place in a ancient version of Iraq actually Baghdad um mm-hmm. a sultan a sultan meets with uh Morpheus the Sandman and he basically has the Sandman come to him and they go on a journey where they travel throughout the the city of Baghdad, and he shows him all of the wonders of this city, and you know, just all of the the wonders and you know the beauties of of this city that he rules over. And Morpheus asks him, "What is this all for?" And ultimately, the Sultan reveals that he knows that all things come to an end. And, you know, ultimately everything degrades over time, but he wants his city to live forever because this is the greatest city that the world has ever known. Mm-hmm. And he he wants Morpheus to, uh, to do this for him. 
you know, Morpheus warns him, uh, but he he's still convinced that he wants to preserve his city forever, and they make a deal. And it's it's almost a twi- it's almost a, a Twilight Zone-ish kind of ending, but what ends up happening is Morpheus puts him to sleep and whisks away all of Baghdad, uh, you know, this golden city, this golden bejeweled city. He whisks it all away mm-hmm. into the land of dreams. And, you know, he tells the, the sleeping sultan that, you know, now this, the, this golden, beautiful city will forever exist in perfection in dreams. Mm-hmm. And it ends with the Sultan awaken awakening in in a noticeably more decrepit and dirty world, you know, and his the Baghdad that he lives in now is just it, it's just it's much shabbier and it's much uglier and it's just it, it's nowhere near as beautiful as the city of wonders that you know he he had but that city will again will always be in his dreams it's it's i i i don't want to say it's bittersweet because it's not the like because this i mean i know that this sultan had uh he had a certain amount of hubris to want this to happen you know Mm-hmm. But, but there's uh, there's a part of me that has to admit that when it does happen, it's yeah. There's something disturbing about that, right? That you know, this guy. I don't think, I don't think he was a bad dude. He was just a good ruler who wanted, in you know. In all honesty, he just wanted his his nation to be great forever. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he pays the price for that. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, it's it's Neil Gaiman flexing his muscle in, um, in telling like an Aesop fable or a or a fairy tale. You know, it's it's, and and Pete Craig Russell's artwork is just. It's like delightfully cartoony. <laughs> I think that's yeah. the only way that I can describe it. You know. Yeah. Like the, the storytelling is so crisp. Yeah. And there's some really. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll try to put up some images uh, on the Instagram just so people can take a look at it. But there's some pretty striking uh, panels and page layouts. Yeah. I'm just flipping through my my issue right now. Another thing that I I thought was cool is is the cover um and i i don't know if it's really a gimmick but the the cover of the issue has this golden ink on it so it's kind of shiny and it's a it's like a a mix of black and and gold ink um dave mckean did the cover as he did all the covers and yeah i think it's just a really good looking cover yeah Another funny thing that doesn't have anything to do with the story, but this issue, um, it's it's a giant size issue that tells a complete story. But at the end of the issue, at the end of the story, there's a, a series of pinups, uh, an art gallery from a bunch of really talented different artists. Bef- 
but the, th- the thing that was I thought was funny was that um, this comic uh, has a pinup by Todd McFarlane. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah wow. he drew uh, he drew Morpheus. That's and, uh, unexpected. Yeah, the the other thing, the the thing that made it stand out tonight as we're recording this was that when I was flipping through my copy of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number fifty, that also had a a pinup gallery in the back and T Mac did a pin up there too. He did a, he drew Michelangelo. <laughs> so that's wow. uh, funny how two comics tonight that we, that we talked about, uh, had pinups had by T-Mac. Todd McFarlane, the Todd <laughs> father. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Like I, I have to reread again, reread it again. Like to see if this was a milestone in the sense that something integral happened to the overall story. Yeah, I don't remember it being a milestone in that sense. Yeah, it just felt like a, a a really good solid story in and of itself. Exactly. Heck, I, I think I would even say if this was somebody's first issue of Sandman that they read. It would work, man. It works. Yeah, I think so too. Like looking, like I, I was just skimming my, uh, my copy of it, and I don't think you need to have read any other Sandman to be able to read this and access it on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it it really does feel like a one and done, fable type story. Uh, cautionary tale, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's a yeah. good way to to put it. So, yeah. for those of you who who haven't read this issue yet, you could always track it down on Comixology. Yeah, and if you like it, then you know you got to get the whole series. There we go. Because Sandman is is a classic for a reason. Yeah, you get to work your way backwards on this one. Yeah, yeah. After you read issue fifty, read forty nine and then forty eight, yeah. forty seven. <laughs> well, I didn't mean that literally, but oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So next comic that uh, I want to discuss briefly is another Vertigo comic. This is one of my picks, and I don't, I don't think you've read it, Albert, but. Shade the Changing Man number fifty. I have not. It's uh, less familiar to me, but Shade is someone that is a comic. Shade the Changing Man is a comic that you've often uh, touted to me. So I'm I'm well aware of your love for this comic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's definitely that... uh, one of my favorite comics. Um, I think sometimes when people ask me, what's your favorite comic book series? Some, sometimes I just tell them Shade the Changing Man by Peter Milligan. Because it, it is one of my favorites. And it's, it's always hard to talk about, like, what's your one favorite series or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, with Shade, uh, I feel pretty comfortable saying that. So Shade the Changing Man uh, was originally a Steve Ditko character from, I think, the 70s. But in the late 80s, uh, DC allowed Peter Milligan and Chris Bacalo to do their own spin on it. 
do their own take on Shade the Changing Man. So this version of Shade the Changing Man doesn't really have anything uh, too similar to the original Ditko creation, but I, I think it's it's more of a like a spiritual successor in terms of just being being weird and interdimensional. The premise of Shade the Changing Man, the Peter Milligan version, is that it's about this alien named Rack Shade, who is from a, a planet called Meta. And what happens to Rack Shade is that at the beginning of the series, he ends up traveling, his consciousness ends up traveling, and he gets stuck in the body of this serial killer on death row named Troy Grenzer. So this is a serial killer who is not just on death row, but it just so happens that the moment that Shade enters his body is when he's on the electric chair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he has some abilities, some weird uh, psychotropic powers that are too hard to explain right now. But what ends up happening is he, he gets out of that electric chair and he he meets up with this woman named Kathy. Now this is a bizarre twist because Kathy, her parents were murdered by Troy. But now an alien consciousness is in Troy's body. So she's kind of like on the run with... The her person parents, who murdered killer. her parents. <laughs> yeah. So it, it it starts off with this really bizarre uh, premise. And it turns out in, like the first couple years of the story are actually an exploration and, and a social commentary on a bunch of subjects in American lore. Uh, really a, an examination of madness and insanity in America in American society. Uh, after the first couple years worth of stories, it, it, it starts to become even trippier and goes into like psychedelic realms. And the, I guess the overarching theme is probably just change. I mean, just to point to something that's obvious in the title, but it's about change, whether that's shade changing into a new body or the relationships between the main characters and and uh, each other changing and evolving with the progression of time but the the main characters are basically shade kathy and their friend who's this other woman named lenny when you get to issue 50 it's it's a big uh turning point because so much of the series um, by this point, and again, I, I don't think this is necessarily a, a huge spoiler, but Shade and, and Kathy end up having a romantic relationship. And this is kind of the uh, culmination of their romance. And I, I don't want to spoil anything much more specific than that, but I, I will say that this story, uh, if they had ended the series with issue 50, it, it, that, it could have been an ending, you know? It could have been 
an ending in and of itself um, because there's definitive closure to most of the most of the characters' uh, story arcs and their relationships. Um, but the, the series would go on for like 20 more issues, which I would still recommend. Um, but this is like probably a real turning point in the series. Like you mentioned how a lot of these uh, big issue 50s tend to be turning points. Well, this issue 50 in particular happens to be part six of a six part story. And it's called, uh, the story itself is called Season in Hell. So if you know that reference, uh, it's obviously pointing to some dark and dire times. And and, uh, yeah, I I don't really want to spoil what happens, but just the fact that the story arc is is, uh, named after a Rimbaud poem, it it kind of... uh, hints at a lot of uh, heavy emotions. So the art is by Chris Bocklow and Mark Buckingham. Uh, it, I think Chris Bocklow is one of my favorite artists. Even even the stuff he's doing today, like he, his stuff in Shade is, is just awesome stuff. A good mix of realism, detail, and stylization. Like he hadn't quite gone to the place where he is to where his style is today um when he was doing shade but you can definitely see hints of it um and when when things reach an emotional fever his art definitely matches that intensity which works for the the story and and there there's there's a panel here that's always stuck out to me and (laughs) funny thing is is i just realized that the past few episodes that we've done, we've, we've made jokes about um, how how it's bad to make a deal with the devil. And yeah, Shade yeah. makes a deal with the devil in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, obviously that doesn't end well for him. Uh, and there's a panel here where he, he realizes that he's made a mistake. And it, it's it's just a really cool drawing of Shade. What have I worn. done? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So yeah, shade number fifty. It's 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 something that I think doesn't really work if you're just picking up a random fiftieth issue to read. Um, I think if you picked it up, you'd probably feel kind of overwhelmed or confused or just you would know that there was a lot of stuff happening that you didn't know the backstory to. But I would say that if you did pick it up and this was your first issue of Shade that you read, I think you would be able to at least recognize that you're in the midst of something incredible and that would probably motivate you to seek out more of it. Well, that sounds good. I mean, I, again, this is something that me and you, or rather, you're constantly touting to me, so I'm, like, pretty aware of the series uh, in terms of it being something that's totally on my radar, and Mm -hmm. I do intend to check it out someday when I catch up on 
everything else that I'm doing <laughs> need to get done reading, you know? Yeah, but totally, man. Totally. It's definitely something on my radar. This is a, this issue in particular, there it does that thing that you mentioned where when, when I look at the cover, I instantly remember the story. <laughs> you know, like even though this yeah. is part six of a six part story story arc, um just the events of the story in this particular issue stand out to me. And it, it, it is it's a it's a story that hits me emotionally, man. Like I remember the first time I read it, I was shaken, man. Like it I don't I don't know if it made me cry or anything, but I was hit pretty hard with it. You know, it, it, it was just an emotional story. Mm. There's also a it's giant sized issue. It's a giant sized issue, and there's a pinup gallery. But uh, unfortunately, there's no Todd McFarlane in here. <laughs> <laughs> what a loss! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Shade yeah. the Changing Man, number fifty, published originally in August 1994 by Vertigo. Look it up on Comicsology just if you want a taste of Shade. But yeah, I would recommend uh starting with issue one nice 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 so now we're gonna go on to the final comic that we have our final number 50 issue mm -hmm. and we're gonna go with issue 50 of daredevil volume two uh, this was written by brian michael bendis and art by alex malieve mm-hmm Yep, and uh, this is uh, I, well. This is another th comic where I think it's probably best read in the context of all the other issues of the series. So if you read it from the start and read it straight until uh, issue fifty. Uh, the story that builds up once you get to well, fifty, the would payoff. Would you say that you have to read from Daredevil number one, or just from the first issue of Bendis's and Malieve's? Oh, run? I sorry, I didn't clarify that. From this first issue of the Bendis of the Bendis run. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, you know what? You could read all the way from the very first Daredevil ever, and if you did that, I would commend you as a comic book <laughs> reader because. That requires some fortitude, but that being said, like, I, yeah, I would say that you should read from the beginning of Bendis's run all the way to 50, because issue 50 is definitely a milestone issue in, in his story arc. It's an issue where that culminates all of the stuff that he'd been building up to uh, previously in his story. Um, but in brief, well, okay, in terms of a brief synopsis, Daredevil is a blind superhero who, he was a, he was a boy who jumped out in front of a truck to save an old man as a child, and he was bitten by a radioactive Daredevil. He was... <laughs> <laughs> Evil Knievel doused he, himself in radiation and bit Matt Murdock. Yeah. 
and and that's how he gained his powers. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, Matt Murdock ran out into the street to save an old man, but was hit by a vat of radioactive material, which blinded him, but heightened all his other senses, and uh, he used these heightened senses to, you know, over time to become the hero Daredevil so that he could fight crime. And he also trained as a ninja. And he also trained as a ninja, you know, because there are ninjas all over Brooklyn. Uh, (laughs) Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, exactly. (laughs) So, so one of the ongoing uh, feuds in his life is between him and the kingpin of crime, Wilson Fisk. Like, over the course of his uh, history, he's faced off with the kingpin many, many times. You know, his his greatest rivalries, his greatest battles have been his battles with the kingpin. So, in the story uh, that Bendis has written at the... Uh, well... The, the way that the story builds up is that at one point in the story, the kingpin is assassinated, or there is an assassination attempt on the kingpin, uh, and he ends up going into hiding, and while that's all happening, you know, Daredevil is, he's dealing with other things in his life, so... Uh, one of the things that happens is, should I spoil this, or is is it even a spoiler? I don't think it's really a spoiler. Okay, so one of the things that happens is a low-level crook basically gets a hold of information about Daredevil's secret identity and reveals it to the world, and, you know, the world, everybody just jumps on it, and as a result, his life is thrown into chaos you know and and while all that's happening while while his life is in chaos um and he's dealing with all this again the the kingpin there's an assassination attempt on the kingpin's life so at this point uh in the story what what where the story's built up to uh a whole bunch of people have been gunning for Matt Murdock they've been coming for him and He's, he's deflected all of them, you know? He's he's thrown them all back. But his mind is almost at a breaking point, And he's, uh, he's pretty tired at this point. Yeah. And when we get to issue 50, what we, what we realize is the Kingpin has come back after the assassination plot. And... This is the moment where he's making his move to claw his way back as the kingpin of Hell's Kitchen. So, when issue 50 starts, you see that... You see all these different locations in in New York, and you realize that there are just dead bodies all over the place, and they're, they're all rival gangsters to Wilson Fisk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and ultimately, what what ends up happening is Wilson Fisk calls you know his 
every low-life thug and, you know, calls all his captains together and lets it be known on the street that he's back and he's here to reclaim his title. And, uh, yeah, am I missing anything, Drew? Like, I mean, other than, you know, the big main beat of it. <laughs> no, that that's pretty much the uh, build-up to everything. Uh, yeah. He's, he's talking to the to these, uh, I don't know if they're captains or lieutenants, but they're basically the people that stepped into the void when when he was recovering from the assassination attempt. Yeah. And, and now now these people think they're, they're still scared of him, but then one guy decides to try and have a backbone and um, he ends up... Uh, yeah, he, he, he tries to stand up to Wilson Fisk because he thinks that you've been out of the game for yeah. months now and you, you think you're just going to come back and we're just going to like bow to you. And yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he does. And, and Kingpin just makes a call. <laughs> and he just says, Chinatown, do it. And then the dude is like, do what? And Kingpin just says, I just ordered the rape and murder of your wife, Ming. Anyone else have a grandstand in them? And then the dude can't say anything. He just kind of like humbly smiles and he's like, dang it, he got me. <laughs> you know? It's like, wow. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then at, at that point, uh, Daredevil, who's been proactively seeking the kingpin during uh, during this meeting, he ends up uh, taking out the uh, I guess the the, the bodyguard uh, in the parking lot and takes takes his car and drives straight into this. Uh, I guess they're fighting in an abandoned warehouse or something like that. Yeah, but he crashes right in there. All the all the other uh, gangsters run away, and it's just Wilson Fisk and Daredevil in this abandoned building facing off. They, they, they exchange a few words, and Daredevil says one of my favorite lines in comics, man. So they, they have this exchange where, where uh, they're just talking smack, and, and Daredevil says, now this is the end of it, Wilson. This is the end of the road for us. You're done. Yeah. And then Fisk says... You should know me well enough by now to know it's done when I say it's done. And Daredevil just sneers at him and he says, No, it's done. I'm sick of outwitting you. No more games. No more chessboard of life. That chessboard of life line, that, that's like something that always stood out to me, dude. Yeah. Now I'm just going to beat the crap out of you. Yeah. No, that's a, that's an awesome line. Totally. And then they just have an epic battle. Yeah. And again, like, you know, up to this point, there have been a lot of uh, conflicts between the two, but it's always it's always framed in this way that it's... Yeah, exactly. It's like... A, it's always framed in a way that it's like mental chess. But, again, mm -hmm. all that just gets thrown out the window and Daredevil just decides... You have to remember, at this point... People have just been coming after him ever since they, the, his identity was revealed. So he he's just had it at this point, and mm -hmm. he's not taking it anymore. And he he takes it to to Wilson Fisk. He takes it to the kingpin, and he just he he savagely beats him basically. Yeah, <laughs> like there's there's no other real way to put it. You know, it's it's and, an awesome fight scene. The 
this is one of my favorite fights in comics, uh, in all all comics actually. And the the way that it's portrayed is is cool because it's not just Alex Maleev drawing the fight, but there's like this whole uh, sequence. It's like uh, like a four page sequence where it's each page is split into two panels and the panels are drawn by a different artist um, from throughout Daredevil's history. So you right. got like, um, I think Lee Weeks drew a panel, uh, Gene Cullen. I want to say one of them is, uh, might've been Casada uh, himself, Joe Casada. Yeah, Casada did drew it. Yeah. I'm looking at it. And yeah. then uh, David Mack and I think Klaus Janssen. So it's like all these recognizable artists from Daredevil history drawing their fight scene to give you this, uh, to give you the idea of how they've been at this for for so long. You know, it's like this this cycle that just never ends. They're constantly at each other's throats, and then right when uh you think that Kingpin has Daredevil. He's trying to choke him out. Daredevil finds like one last reserve of strength and is able to break out of the hold. And then he manages to like literally jump on top of Wilson Fisk. And you just have a whole page of him pounding his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. Daredevil on top of Wilson Fisk. And you just see his fists like flying down and all this blood splattering everywhere and Daredevil's just smiling. <laughs> he's pummeling the dude, man. Yeah, he's really messing him up. His yeah. face is, is all messed up. Yeah. It's a pretty savage beating that he puts down on him. Yeah. And it ends with... So, it ends with Daredevil getting up while Wilson Fisk is laying on the ground and presumably unconscious. And then in the next scene, Daredevil is driving a car through a bar with the Kingpin's body on on the hood. And the you know, the body goes flying into this crowd of of just low lives. And again, I'm gonna reiterate this, but remember this this is at the end of you know maybe weeks of people just coming after him in his personal life. And Daredevil is at this point at a breaking point. But at this point, he's beaten the Kingpin and he's thrown him out in front of just this bar of just scum. And he decides to give this speech, making his terms absolutely clear. And it's a pretty mm -hmm. awesome speech, but he goes... This is the kingpin, your kingpin. This is Wilson Fisk, and I beat him with my bare hands. And this man is going to rot in jail for the rest of his life for the hell he has made of this city. And if I could do this to him, imagine what I will do to you, any of you. If from this second forward you sell your drugs, rob, or whore anywhere near my city, if you can't control yourselves... If you can't figure a way to be productive in this life, find somewhere else far from here. Far from here. I am here to save you people so badly need some sort of kingpin 
someone to lord over you. Well, from now on, it's me. I'm not protecting this city anymore. I'm running it. And I say the people of Hell's Kitchen are my people. This is my territory now. And I say get out or change tonight. You think you know me? You think you know who I am? These are the new rules. This is how it will be from now on. Spread the word. And if you think I'm kidding, look at this carcass in front of you. Look at him. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And and it's... then when he says that last part, when he says look at him, it's just a full page splash of Wilson Fisk's unconscious body, like his face all bleeding and bruised up. Yeah. It's and and the other thing is that during in the middle of uh the speech, Daredevil, he's so pissed off, he straight up pulls his mask off in front of all these people. So yeah. even though Matt Murdock has been denying that he's Daredevil all this time, like at this point, he doesn't even care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on some level, it's more menacing, right? Because he's, it's a flex. He's, he's essentially letting them know that, yep. you know, okay, let's say you do know who I am. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. If I were one of those people in the bar, I wouldn't do anything. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be too intimidated, man. That that's some that's some crazy stuff right there because he just he totally messed up Kingpin and he's he's a blind guy driving a car <laughs> crashing into a bar. That, yeah. You gotta be pretty crazy to do something like that. I don't really yeah. know too many blind people that drive cars. Well, now that you mention it, there are there is some funny stuff there because i'm like okay so he knocked the kingpin out how far was the bar from where he knocked out the kingpin because that means he had to drive for a while with the kingpin on his hoodie <laughs> <laughs> like what if, the, what if the bar was like five miles away or ten miles away then he had to drive for like ten miles with this dude on the hood what, what if what if he left the unconscious kingpin lying in the trunk or in the back seat or somewhere. And when he was like a block away from, from the bar, that's when he took him out and put him on the hood. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, the logistics of that would just be weird. <laughs> like just all the work that he would have to do to do that. <laughs> he, he is a lawyer, man. He, he probably uh, knows how to be dramatic. He has a flair for it. So he's yeah. willing to plan and do what it takes to intimidate. Yeah. I will say when I read that for the first time, like all those years ago, it, it's, it was like, it was like watching Fight Club or something, you know, like the first time you watch Fight Club when you're, you know, in your twenties mm -hmm. and you're like young and just full of testosterone, your brain just kind of, you just eat that stuff up that, oh, yeah, that, totally. you know, that chest thumping, like. You know, macho stuff. Macho stuff. And, like, if you love that that type of thing, like, this Daredevil run was just... That was... You know, that's... That's that's real, like, action for me. It's, it's more macho than any 90s comic, you know? <laughs> yeah, because there's actual... There's an actual emotional component to it. You actually yeah. feel how much yeah. these two men hate each other. Yeah. You, you feel Matt Murdock's rage, his frustration at everything that has led up to this moment. 
for like sure. If, if you read the entire story arc, um, like starting from like issue forty six, it's called it's a story called Hardcore. So like issues forty six to fifty is a story arc called Hardcore, and he goes through some of his uh, deadliest enemies. Like he he fights Typhoid Mary, he fights Bullseye, yeah, and like both of both of them take a lot out of him. By the time he gets to Kingpin, you know, it's basically he's just gone through two sub bosses to fight the big boss. But the even the, the previous issue, issue forty nine, when he fights Bullseye, that is an awesome yeah. issue when it comes yeah. to that uh that chest thumping macho posturing. Because after totally. he after he whoops Bullseye, he he gives another monologue there, a a, a really good trash talk speech that it's something that I reread every so often just for fun. Mm-hmm. Totally. And the other thing about issue 50 is that it, it really is a, a big turning point in the in the whole uh, Bendis and Malieve story. Because after, after Daredevil publicly, you know, he outs himself at this point. Like, the media has already outed his identity, even though whenever he's had a chance, um, he's tried to deny it. But at this point, he doesn't care, and he he takes his mask off in public, and he he starts calling himself the kingpin of yeah. Hell's Kitchen, um, and it it definitely leads to a turning point in the entire story arc, or in the entire story uh, that Bendis and Malieve told. Can I tell you something? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first read that, like that entire uh, monologue that he gives at the end. Where he talks mm-hmm. about how he's the kingpin and how he's running the city now. Mm-hmm. When I first read that, I didn't actually take it literally. I thought he was just posturing, right? Yeah. And then as I was reading it more, I was like, oh, wait. He meant that literally. He's like taking over the city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> I think I had the same thought, man. When I first read it, I remember yeah. I picked up the issue on a whim because I yeah at the time I, I wasn't really I wasn't really reading uh I wasn't buying Daredevil on a on an issue by issue basis but when yeah I, I don't I don't know what it was I think it might have just been the cover because the cover looked dope as heck man yeah Alex Malib is awesome his art yeah his his cover has it's it's a really worn out and kind of beaten up Matt Murdock with holding his mask in his hand with his eyes closed just sitting in a chair, but the the way that he's postured, he he actually looks like he's sitting the way that the kingpin would sit on a throne, you know, like when the kingpin is just yeah. chilling, sitting on his chair. That's that's like exactly how he would sit, and and right, right. Alex Malieve drew Matt Murdock with his mask off in that kind of position, and then that just drew my attention. Um, and then I flipped through the comic at the store, and I was like, dude, this whole comic is like one long fight scene I, i'm just gonna buy this <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah so like I, I didn't actually know all the backstory but after reading this i was like dude this is intense i gotta find out um how it all led up to this and that was yeah. when i i found the trade paperbacks for the beginning of their run and yeah from that that point on i was like hooked on it and i was buying it every month nice yeah, it's it's a sensational uh, Daredevil arc. It's it's one of the best, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, like lots of love to Frank Miller 
uh, and all the work that he's done, but this is, you know, it's up there with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely something that probably could have been in our top 25 if we uh, had wanted to talk about it. But the uh, prognosticators, the arcanists, the mystics, the scientists, and the Nobel <laughs> Prize winners, I guess they thought differently. Well, I mean, the thing is, we just had a lot to choose from. And as much as I would have wanted it to, uh, like, not everything could have made it, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, our list wouldn't, our, our list would have been... Our top know. 25 would have been, like, a hundred of our favorites. Yeah, yeah. And that wouldn't yeah. have made sense, mathematically speaking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our top 25 are a hundred are actually a hundred comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Imagine explaining that to someone. <laughs> I would need Shanus to explain that because he knows math. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Maybe one, maybe Shanus or somebody can email us and break it down for us. You know, yeah. so we're we're open to being educated. Yeah. How does how does one hundred equal twenty five? <laughs> that that's something I'm not sure of. <laughs> <laughs> so, any well, other final thoughts on uh, issue fifties in general, Albert? Uh, I mean, I, I, I have great fondness for issue fifties and, you know, hopefully if we keep doing this, we're going to at some point get to an episode where we're going to be talking about our favorite issue one hundreds. So there we go. Wouldn't it be funny if we did an episode where we talked about our favorite issue 62s or something? We can do that. (laughs) <laughs> that'd be that'd be you know we could make this a recurring segment where we just choose random ones, and I'd be more than happy to to explore that. It if anything, it forces me to do research. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, what 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 is the best issue seventeen of all time, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of work to research. That would definitely be a lot of work to research. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I, yeah. <laughs> I got nothing for you. <laughs> well, this was our 50th episode. I'd like to thank all of you listeners who have been tuning in, whether you've been with us all 50 episodes or followed us along more recently. We're glad to have you aboard. Uh, if you have any of your own favorite 50th issues or anniversary issues in general, hit us up. You can uh, leave a comment on our Instagram or email us at betweenthegutterspodcasts at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of our journey for these past 50 issues episodes and the past three years um eat your barbara's morning oat crunch the official cereal (laughs) between the gutters (laughs) we're corporate chills (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, everybody. All right. Peace out. Peace out, guys.